Well, thank you. At the uh, first service, our kids, uh, I say our kids, Kate, my daughter Katie and my son-in-law uh, William uh, were in the service, the, the first service, you know, with our, our grandkids, uh, Liam and Maisie and Greer. And as I told them, I will say to you, uh, when, you're a, when you're a father and a grandfather, it matters that your children and your grandchildren are being cared for, loved and cared for in a local church. They love this church. And so we, we love that they love you, <laughs> that it works, uh, works out well for everyone. So, but thank you for, for that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians. And this morning we're looking at verses 3 through 11. Second uh, Corinthians, by the way, it's, uh, it's a tough letter to read. The Apostle Paul shows more of his personality, and and uh, it's a very personal letter. At times, it's it's tough, and I think we'll kind of see why here uh, in a few moments. But I want to introduce it by this: a few a few weeks ago, here, Marlon Harris preached uh, on the necessity of Christians living in authentic fellowship with each other. I don't know if you heard that sermon. It was it's very, very good. I think Chip said you need to preach a whole sermon, a series on this thing, and which is true because he talked about the importance of being in the body of Christ, bearing with each other in personal relationships, bearing one another's burdens, confessing, knowing each other even to the point we confess our sins to one another, that's intimate. Praying for one another. God does not intend for us to live in isolation from each other. In fact, we cannot grow in our Christian life without being in fellowship because fellowship is a means of grace. So anyway, that's what Mar- Marlon preached on that. And I, want, I mention it because I want to continue in that vein this morning because in this passage, the Apostle Paul alludes to much the same thing with one caveat, and that is authentic, uh, authentic fellowship, or, or in this passage, we might even define it as comfort and comforting one another. It isn't restricted to the person in the pew, but it has to include the pastor and the pastors as well. And I think you will kind of see that as this comes out. Uh, Beginning to read at verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 
But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by your prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Once again, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the privilege of worship, the privilege of of coming to sing your praises, to hear your word read, Uh, Lord God, to praise you for the salvation that we uh, hope in and rest in because of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And Lord, we thank you uh, that you speak to us, uh, even through the weakness of preaching and through sinners, Lord, like me. And I pray that you would take charge of my heart, my mouth, my mind, Lord, that I would only say those things here that are pleasing to you. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you can take this, this and, and, and make it personal for each man, woman, and child who's here, uh, Lord. And so we commit this time in your word to you, and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As Chip uh, mentioned, um, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America met this past week, and Julie and I were able to go. In fact, this was Julie's first um, General Assembly, and I mean, she loved it. You know, I've been doing th- those meetings, you know, for years. But uh, this year, I wasn't a commissioner, but this year um, I was representing our ministry, the ministry of the of Mission to North. America that's called Bent Tree. And it's a ministry that seeks to pastor pastors. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Um, but out of the hundreds of pastors who were there, we always do this. We set, in mean, the last few years we've done this, we set up our booth in such a way where people can sit with us and visit for a while. And they, and they know who, who we are. Um, but out of the hundreds of pastors who sat down and had conversations, some of those conversations were very encouraging, but some of them were heartbreaking. We've heard all kinds of things. Let me give you uh, a sampling. One pastor shared, my daughter has just informed us that she wants instead to be my son. Another said, I'm in my mid-60s, I've served the church for three decades, and I can't find a call because I lost my last call due to a rash decision during about a depression where I tried to kill myself. Another says, I'm walking the halls of General Assembly and see men and their spouses, and it only heightens the hole in my life from losing my spouse earlier this year. Another says, my my grown children are failing to launch and it's nagging at me day and night. Still another, I have a rogue parishioner that's emailing the whole denomination telling them what a scumbag I am and it's wearing me out. And finally, one says, I need older men to speak into my life at the beginning of my ministry. I could go on and on. 
And yet still most of these men left General Assembly to go back to their hometowns and their churches and to stand faithfully behind the pulpit for yet another week. Now, some of you don't like hearing that. It's, it's uncomfortable. I mean, we know, you know, I'm sure, that pastors struggle. I mean, you just don't expect to hear about it or may not want to hear about it. it in fact, you may even think, um, I had a, I had actually a member uh, of my church who used to leave notes on bulletins and leave them in the pew for me to find. And there was one in particular uh, that said, since when do pastors have the corner on depression? I guess I was preaching on depression that day and maybe he thought, I shouldn't be depressed. Pastor shouldn't be, sort of that idea of if my pastor needs a pastor, maybe I need a different pastor. And see, now the reason I say all of that is um, because this passage before us debunks all of that. The Apostle Paul and his companions, and you get this throughout the entire letter when you read it, his companions, the Apostle Paul, they're hurting. Paul has been hurt. And he doesn't hold back in verses 8 and 9. He puts it bluntly. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. The NIV says that we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so much so, he says, that we despaired of life itself. Now, when you look at commentators about this, no, no one really knows exactly what the circumstance is that Paul is talking about here in this passage. And it's kind of hard I mean, because Paul had to despair for his life a lot. He, he was in trouble. He was always in danger. In fact, he mentions numerous things later in this chapter or in this letter, chapter 11, he talks about prison, floggings, beaten with rods, lost at sea, shipwrecked, hunger, thirst. Uh, Paul went through all kinds of things. Commentators think that here he may, because he mentions Asia, he may have been referring to riots in Ephesus that you can read about in the book of Acts. Others suggest it, it had to do with danger from uh, wild animals in their travels in the wilderness at least one commentator suggested he may just be talking about the exhaustion and the discouragement of pastoral ministry. Uh, the pressure of, think of the Apostle Paul, he's out there, he's preaching the gospel, not all, not all people are happy to hear him. He's trying to plant churches. The Apostle Paul planted the Corinthian church. And he wrote more letters to it than anyone. He loved this church despite the kinds of things that they did to him and said to him. That church had all kinds of issues. I'm sure you're aware of the church at Corinth. You think your church has problems. That church had problems. Remember, they tolerated a, a very open, public, salacious affair within the body. 
They were a church that was divided into factions. There were personalities that different people would follow. Um, Their worship was disorderly, remember. They didn't even wait for each other for communion. But I think among the worst things that they did here, frankly, is that they hurt the Apostle Paul. They said things to him that, you know, and I've said this in the first hour, you can say one thing that can really build someone up, especially a pastor, and then you can bring them down just as fast. But they remember what they said about the Apostle Paul. They say that he was a bad preacher. They said he's impressive in his writings, but not in person. You know, and you sort of get some of that, you know, when you read in Acts when Paul was preaching in Athens and they said, what's this babbler trying to say? Paul said, when he came to the Corinthians, he came with fear and trembling. I guess he was not impressive. They even questioned, this is worse though, they even questioned his integrity with money. If you'll remember at the end of this letter, Paul is going to encourage the Corinthians to send money to the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. He's going to take an offering and he's going to bring it back. But apparently they didn't trust him to do that. They questioned his uh, integrity even though they didn't pay him. In chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, he kind of calls their hands on it because he says, was it a sin? This is how personal this letter is. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when, of course, you you get in the latter, especially, I think some commentators refer to especially chapters 10 and 11 of this book as the severe letter because the Apostle Paul is so hurt and he's responding to it. Pastors need pastoring too. Pastors need comfort too. Notice, first of all, how Paul and his companions, they're comforted by God, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Um, remember when Jesus was uh, with his disciples and he, he was about to leave them, and they were sad, uh, he told them that he, he had to leave, he had to go to be with his Father um, because if he didn't, the Holy Spirit would not come. And, and he, you want the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to come. You see, Jesus knew what the disciples were about to get into. Jesus knew that his disciples, who would then become apostles, being sent out into the world as ambassador, ambassadors for him, preaching the gospel, preachers, church planters, all of this, including the Apostle Paul, that they were going to face great hardship and great discouragement. And that because of it, they were going to need supernatural help in order for them to keep pressing on and not want to just give up. You know, uh, I, I, uh, 
I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. That's my, uh, my hometown, my home state. And I grew up at McElwain Presbyterian Church, which is an older, one of the first PCA churches, I guess, in the denomination. And um, behind the pulpit at my home church are five words printed on the back. You can only, you have to be sitting behind it to see the five words on the pulpit. And it said, and the words simply say, sir, we would see Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. In fact, you know, I'd only seen it in that church until I got into the pulpit this morning and it's right here staring me in the face in this pulpit too. Because later, you know, as a little kid, I didn't know what it meant. But of course, as I began to grow in the faith, I started to get some sense of what it is. Sir, you're not here to entertain us. Uh, You're not here to share your own wisdom with us. Show us Jesus. Present the gospel to us. Um, I was February, this past February, Julie and I have been in the ministry now four decades, so it's been a long time. But back in February, I was preaching at my home church again, and I was sitting behind the pulpit, and I was seeing these words again. And I'm telling you now, four decades in the ministry, those words just seem more astounding to me and, and heavy in some ways. Sobering. Especially for the pastor, because look, you know and I know that the man behind the pulpit is far from perfect. He is just a sinner saved by God's grace like the rest of us. And every Sunday, if you think about it, every Sunday, something of a miracle takes place behind this pulpit and every gospel preaching pulpit anywhere. Jesus performs a miracle. And that is that Jesus speaks to you and to me through the foolishness of preaching and oftentimes out of the mouth of a fool. I mean, think, think about it. When you and I come in here on Sunday morning, we bring all kinds of stuff in here with us our doubts, our questions, our, our sins, our failures, our family frustrations, our worries about work, our careers, our messed up marriages, all of our anxieties and fears. We bring all that stuff into us. And Jesus does a miracle. Jesus uses your pastor or pastors to speak into your life. Jesus comforts you. Jesus encourages you with the gospel. He speaks the truth into your doubts. He reminds you that God so loved the world that he sent his own son Jesus into the world to die that we might through faith and repentance put our faith and trust in him and receive the gift of eternal life and forgiveness and mercy, all that stuff. Jesus reminds you of all those promises. 
And then as your advocate, Jesus prays for you and with you through the man behind the pulpit, and he sends you out into the world so that you can live your life as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. You and I need this, this hour every week to keep going. Where do we put our baggage if not here? And so the, the question remains, what does the man behind the pulpit do with his mess? Jesus must comfort him too. And so that he might in turn comfort us. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. God through Jesus comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted. So secondly, the, 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 the Apostle Paul is companions, first of all, they are comforted by God, they're comforted by Jesus. And having been comforted themselves, Paul and his companions, they're now able to comfort the members of the Corinthian church. And now see that, that infers something uncomfortable for us at first gla glance, kind of when you think about it. See, what Paul is saying is we've suffered a lot, a lot. But God has comforted us in that suffering so that we could comfort you in your suffering. You see that I did, that when I look at that, it makes me uncomfortable because it's as if the Apostle Paul's saying, you want your pastor to suffer. And truthfully, the call into the ministry is a call to suffering. To some degree, the call to follow Jesus as a follower of him is a call to suffer. But you want the men behind the pulpit to suffer. You want them to be acquainted with grief. Why? I know it sounds weird, but why is that? It's because how else could they speak into your mess, into your pain, into your suffering, unless they have experientially uh, been met with comfort from God themselves in their own lives? How can, how can they speak to our doubt and our failure if, they haven't if God hasn't experientially met them in theirs? Let me, I mean, let me tell you something that's a, a kind of an inside thing for pastors is, and I've felt this my whole life. i felt it as a campus minister. I felt it. I can stand up here and preach the gospel to you and, and I can believe in forgiveness and mercy and grace for you, no matter how deep your sin goes. And yet, and my wife points this out to me on a regular basis, that I don't believe it myself. I can believe it for you. And the very things that I preach with, I struggle with, I think, is there grace still left there? Really, Grace, still left there for me. As one bent tree pastor put it, describing himself, he said, we're, we're broken too. We struggle too. But see, it's, a, it's that very struggle that God uses to bring comfort and hope to you and me. Does that make sense? Need them to suffer. Look, 
Here's, a, here's a, a, an illustration that I think brings this up. Um, everybody knows the famous British pastor Charles Spurgeon, you know, one of the greatest preachers of all time and huge church, and he struggled with his own doubts and depression at times. Sometimes he was not able to preach for weeks. But he was speaking to a group of pastors, and he told, us, he told them a story. And this is the story that he said to them. He said, one, one Sabbath morning, I preached from the text, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though I didn't say so, yet I preached from my own experience. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark. But I couldn't tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness for which I condemn myself. Think despairing of life itself. Charles Spurgeon, he goes on. He says, on the following Monday evening, a man came to see me who bore all the marks of despair upon his countenance. His hair seemed to stand upright. His eyes were ready to start from their sockets. And he said, after a little parlaying, he said to me, I've never before in my life heard any man speak who seemed to know my heart. Mine is a terrible case. But on Sunday morning, you painted me to life and preached as if you had been in my very soul. And Spurgeon says, by God's grace, I saved that man from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty, but I know I could not have done it if I had not myself been confined in the dungeon in which he lay. I tell you this story, brethren, because you may not understand your own experience, and the perfect people may condemn you for even having it. But what do they know of, of God's servants? What do they know of pastors? Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul, he notes this kind of himself in verses 6 and 7. If, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshakable, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You know, if you have, I named this, serm, this sermon the comfort circle. It's kind of the only thing I think of, because as I study in the passage, it, it seems like there's, there's something of a comfort circle that's being suggested here, described here. It starts when Paul and his companions, they've been through hardship and suffering, and God comforts them in their suffering so that they can uh, comfort that themselves being comforted, they can now comfort others. You see that, this part. But the circle's not complete. The circle's completed in this passage when God uses the prayers of those who have been comforted 
to pray for the ones who comforted them, the Apostle Paul and his companions, that God would would deliver them again and again and again from their suffering so that they can keep encouraging us. You see the sort of the circle look at verse 11. He says, you, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The NIV says it like this, on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. The Apostle Paul saying, we're We've been in a mess. We're going to be in more messes. We're despairing of our life. We're going to despair of it again. But God will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. That's huge. The church being comforted, this is the last point, the church being comforted, God then uses the prayers to keep Paul and his companions going. John Calvin says it like this, while Paul felt assured that his safety would be the object of God's care, his safety would be God's care, though he were destitute of all human help, yet he knew that it was well-pleasing to God that he should be aided by the prayers of the saints. I know that you uh, pray for your pastor and pastors. But I, I really have a simple message here today, and it's kind of one that I can give because we're a part of a ministry that tries to reach and pastors and champion their cause and bless them where we can. And I know it's simple to say, just pray for your pastor. But I really just want to encourage you from this passage to pray for them more. Because Satan doesn't stop striving against them after they hang up their robe on Sunday. In fact, here's, here's another inside thing. I've often heard pastors confess that it's after they have preached and led worship on Sunday morning that it's, it's Sunday afternoon and Monday that are the worst. It's like they poured themselves out and Satan just comes with condemnation and temptation. Pastors doubt their callings. They struggle with the temptation to quit. We have a we have a private uh, listserv where pastors from all over the country, over 200 of them, can communicate with each other uh, all the time, 24/7. I wish I had a literally wish I had a dollar for everyone that came on there and go, guys, pray for me today. I just want to quit. I know we don't like to hear it, but it's true. The criticisms and the complaints, some things that are said to them that come back to haunt them. And their wives are the only ones sometimes who know the kind of pain that they're experiencing. Julie says that a pastor's wife has to be something of a steel magnolia. I like that. Because they see their husbands suffer and they have to maintain a brave face. And they feel it, too. And they need to be comforted, too. 
Matthew Henry says that our adversities, our adversities are God's opportunities. I like that. So there's something that, of this comfort circle. And each of us is a part of it in some way. And Chip and I were talking about this in between services because I want to make it clear that any of us at any point can be somewhere in the circle. You might be comforting someone who has been suffering or you might be suffering right now and need comfort. Or you might be suffering and need prayer. It's, again, part of what it is to be a part of the fellowship of believers. We are all necessary. I need you to keep me from wanting to quit. You need me to come and comfort you when you want to quit. All kinds of stuff. It's we share our pain with each other, and that's important. And it all begins and ends with Jesus. Because Jesus is the true author and securer of all comfort. And I'll just simply end with this, that there can be no true peace and there can be no true comfort in your life apart from him. And if you have not yet come to that place where you realize you need him, you're ready to stop running and you need mercy and you you need grace and you need comfort, spiritual comfort. Only he can give you that through the gospel. And when you come to him, this would be the most comforting day of your life. He longs to bring you comfort so that you in turn may comfort others for his glory and for their good, the comfort circle. Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you really are the God of all comfort. Life is hard for all of us, uh, and we all doubt and we all struggle. Thank you, Jesus, how you um, reveal yourself in your gospel to us every week uh, from this pulpit in every gospel preaching pulpit. And we thank you that you, you that you comfort us through men that are themselves broken and themselves sinners. It's a mystery, God, that you choose to use the foolishness of preaching to speak directly into our lives. And Lord, we do thank you for the pastors of I thank you, Lord, for the pastors of this church. They're amazing, and I have appreciated their ministry so much. And Lord, I pray that you would put a hedge around them, that you would protect them. Lord, that you would lift them up and comfort them in their discouragements. And Lord, remind us as members of the church to, uh, to be careful what we say, how it might hurt, or to be intentional to say something that might lift another up. Let us be that way toward each other, Lord, as we are comforting each other through suffering. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I pray that you'll apply this uh, to each man, woman, and child, Lord, that's here in the way you want it applied. In Jesus' name, amen.